The dialogue around human rights has been changing a lot in recent years. Today, companies need to be more transparent, more active and more able to deal with the issue. And it's not just from a PR perspective, but stakeholders like investors and others are requiring more information on this aspect of sustainability. Welcome to Renewable Future from the Renewable Materials Company, Stora Enso. We generally look at different aspects of environmental sustainability in this podcast, but social sustainability and human rights and social impact in particular is also a crucial part of not just anyone working with renewable materials, but any large corporation full stop. It's a topic that's climbing the agenda these days of senior management teams. We've definitely seen a shift in the world of business and human rights over the last few months in particular, but slowly over the last couple of years. That's Katrona Seri, on the line from Geneva in Switzerland. And I'm Director of Social Impact at the World Business Council for Sustainable Development. What we've seen is that business practitioners and more importantly business leaders have been uh, speaking openly about the negative human rights challenges that they face in their operations and in their supply chains. This is quite a a significant shift for an area that's firmly placed within legal uh, risk and compliance departments of organizations uh, and where companies usually seek to avoid any public association with human rights. So companies used to avoid talking about human rights, but now more and more are putting their hands up and saying, this is a challenge for us and this is what we're doing about it. Why are they doing this? Well. One reason is the UN. Back in 2011, the UN came up with its guiding principles on business and human rights, a set of guidelines for companies to follow to ensure they prevent, address and remedy human rights impacts. It's good to remember those three, prevent, address, remedy, as everyone we talk to in this podcast refer to this setup. Anyway, it was these guidelines that have started the ball rolling and has led the way for further changes. It's as much about a a culture change as anything else. We've seen that shift happening in the climate space in the last five to ten years, where talking about environmental impacts has gone from a very negative thing to a very positive thing to see companies taking significant actions to tackle their carbon emissions. Um, So now we're starting to see that similar trend in the human rights space, where tackling a a negative issue that is faced by companies can be seen as a, a positive action. So the days when you just try to say something vague yet correct about human rights is long gone. But how you talk about human rights is a challenge. It can be very different from one company to another. Alina Espinosa is a social issues manager at the PRI, Principles for Responsible Investment. And her view is that communication of human rights is one of the key challenges within human rights reporting. Um, Human rights indicators typically are qualitative, uh, which makes it harder to quantify. Um, Also worth mentioning that the vocabulary used for the social issues in general, not just um, human rights, is less concrete. So, for example, if you compare human rights versus carbon emissions, um, human rights is a concept that can be hard to grapple because it can cover anything from labor rights to gender equality, while carbon emissions is is, is a more concrete and measurable thing. And I guess another issue is um, that uh, human rights is difficult to tackle as a single actor. 
um, tackling human rights issues um, and social issues in general requires the involvement of, of a number of stakeholders, so namely investors and companies, but also governments as well. So it's clearly a complex topic and difficult to measure. How should companies go about this work? Companies have the UN guiding principles on business and human rights, and and that's a good guide on how to start looking at the issue of human rights. This means, for example, having a commitment to respect human rights, translate that into policies and processes that will help them mitigate the risks of their business operations and also act when and provide remedy when an impact has occurred as well. So understanding the risks, identifying them, mitigating them, but also providing remedy whenever something happens. So I don't think there is a perfect company that is doing this perfectly fine and has no issues when it comes to human rights. I think what companies can do is just be as transparent as possible, report on these different issues. And this comes again to the qualitative nature of indicators and looking at this not not just so much on on a number basis because companies that might be reporting on an increase on on allegations even though it might look like a negative result what that number could be saying is that they either have a more accurate idea of what is actually happening in within their operations or it might be that their systems are more effective, or it might be that uh, employees and suppliers even feel more empowered to report on these allegations. Stora Enso, the guys behind this podcast, agree that the subject is difficult to tackle. Ilve Stiller is their director of human rights. There's not a KPI list on how to do this. And it's quite telling that both GRI and other reporting framework guidelines are reviewing how best to disclose human rights performance. You know, a ton of CO2 is a ton of CO2 everywhere. But you can't kind of measure output on human rights in the same way. Uh, And measuring input and correlate that to output also doesn't really work when you're talking about social topics. So what is Store Enso doing? They were actually alerted to problems within their own supply chain about seven years ago, and this discovery led them to doing a really comprehensive audit of more than 90 operations in 22 countries. They gave us a a host of information about what we do well and where we have weaknesses and where we need to improve. And that has led to what we have today, eight high-priority human rights that we focus on. We have a human rights policy that is um, recently updated and, and published, and we're working on going through our operations to see how well these eight high-priority human rights are covered with existing processes, systems, monitoring and controls, and of course adapt where that is needed. And so that's that's a journey. <laughs> this is not something that is done in a, in a short period of time. It takes several years to get to. So when you talked about this audit, because it sounds you know very thorough, all right, when you mm. talk about 90 different operations, mm. uh, that's, a, that's a big task. That's a big task and it came on the back of an experience that um, kind of rattled our company uh, quite a lot um, and made us realize that um, human rights is something that we need to really understand in all aspects of our business and not just perhaps in high high risk countries or in strategic partnerships but in, in various different parts of the company. So that was the kind of the, the reason why it was such a broad scope and to really understand small and big things. So everything from very technical things on the shop floor or on the on the work floor to more management systems, 
weaknesses or flaws that we needed to to address. And honestly, that that whole process took several years to go through. So it's not something you do on your own. It's not something you do quickly. And it, it takes quite a lot of resources. But I, I can't imagine how you come to identifying where your high priority or where your priorities should lay without making a, a, um, a detailed assessment. Doing the audit and highlighting priority areas is one thing, but executing on those areas is another. All of these requirements that we have on our operations and our suppliers have to be implemented locally. So trying to make sure that we are bringing whatever adaptations that are required into existing processes uh, to make them workable, operationalize them, make them locally owned. And so they really can be lived and it's not uh, kind of an add-on management process on top of everything else that is already there. Also, it must be a huge job. Oh yeah, we're not done yet. (laughs) We've just started. Uh, But there's great energy to do this uh, and there's a lot of commitment. I'm sure we will bump into bottlenecks and challenges and we just have to deal with it as as we go. Um, And, you know, the attention on this topic won't go away. Uh, There's legislation popping up all across Europe right now. And this is where Ilva Stiller, Alina Espinosa and Katrona Tseri all agree. The subject is gaining more and more traction and pressure is coming from several stakeholders, probably due to the definitions and frameworks of the UN guiding principles. Katrona Tseri. Uh, on the back of this clear definition of business responsibility, um, we've seen public interest rising. We've seen more information uh, about business performance making its way into the media, Uh, into mainstream media um, and into the hands of regulators and investors. Um, We've seen increased regulation building on the voluntary framework provided by the UN guiding principles. And we've seen uh, investors' expectations rising in this space. All of these multiple impacts are, are pushing businesses to pay more attention. So several stakeholders want more information and investors are a key group. They are increasingly interested. First, Alina Espinosa, then Katrona Seri. What we see more of is companies reporting more management indicators. So, for example, how many audits they have conducted. But there is less on the impact of those particular activities. So I I think investors could focus more on impact. And I mean, if if a company just reports that everything is fine, that usually should be um, suspicious. Obviously, there is a financial case to be made around tackling human rights issues. But I think that's not the whole story and investors should not just be motivated by that. Um, I mean, and uh, using the words of Dante Pesce, he's the member of UN Working Group uh, on Business and Human Rights. He was saying that the call for business is to thrive as businesses and make profit, but not at the shoulder or at the expense to, to others, specifically people. So I think that's the key message um, because we're trying to address not the risk to business, but the risk to people. So I think that's, that's an important point to make. But having said that, there are... Um, financial risks that investors should consider when it comes to human rights abuses and this go from reputational risks so companies that could have brand damage consumer backlash if they're found um, uh, involving allegations operational risks so supply chain disruption if a supplier um, it's 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 out of the is out of business because of a particular issue so impact on lead time product quality lost of sales or uh, market share 
Um, and legal and regulatory risks, I mean, which are the most important. We see potential lawsuits and fines coming from uh, legal frameworks that are um, increasing in number. I think investor expectations have been steadily rising uh, on this subject, and that obviously has a, a significant influence on company behavior. Um, so there are a series of rating and benchmarking initiatives that are putting information into investors' hands, um, and investors are, are responding to that um, by coming together to make their voices heard. For example, the, the 2019 edition of the Corporate Human Rights Benchmark, which was just released in November, it's a, a free and open ranking of 200 companies, um, more than 85 investors with more than 5 trillion US dollars in assets have endorsed that framework, which is quite a, a signal to companies. Um, in addition, investors have that information, so they're starting to factor this into decisions relating to access to capital um, and cost of capital. So they're engaging clients in dialogue around accusations of human rights abuses. Uh, in some cases, they're severing those relationships. On the other hand, they're also providing credit facilities that depend on sustainability performance. Ilva Stiller at Store Enso has also first-hand experience of the increasing interest from investors. You know, to have to really have a meaningful conversation about human rights requires another type of dialogue uh, around performance. It, it it needs less of a kind of criteria list and much more of a conversation and a and a longer time horizon to see impact. So there needs to be some, some patience in that conversation uh, and also kind of a, a discussion and challenge on, on, on the realities and to, to really understand the, the company context and the operational context as well to, to understand progress. Several of our long-term uh, investors are engaging in uh, detailed conversations and want to understand. And I think we're actually fortunate to have those kind of, of investors to seek those dialogues and really um, go behind the numbers to understand uh, what's going on and if there are challenges to have those conversations openly and clearly and say look we haven't figured this one completely out but we are working on it we're not going to let it go we can also show show situations where we it hasn't been perfect um, but what we're learning from that and how we are uh, you know improving as, a, as an organization if this podcast episode has taught us anything, then it's taught us that human rights is a growing issue, it's difficult to measure, and no large corporation is doing everything right. But the trend is to at least highlight and be transparent about where you have flaws and start working to make them better. May that good work continue. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Renewable Future from the Renewable Materials Company, Store Enso. We'd love to hear your feedback and ideas for new programmes or any comments you may have. Mail to podcast at storeenso.com.